0: Peter has laid forth a difficult theme and difficult road ahead for his readers. You are to be holy, he says in chapter 1, just as God is holy. Now that's a tall order in a world full of temptation and sin where our family and friends uh, seem to thrive in lifestyles that run contrary to God's Word. Peter is calling us To be holy, to not be conformed to the passions and pursuits of this world, but to be self-controlled, he says in chapter 1, to conduct ourselves with a reverent fear, knowing that the God whom we serve, whom we call Father, is one who judges each man's works with impartiality. This life of holiness is to be seen in the lives of us as believers as we live out the one another commands to one another. A love that we show is to be selfless, and sincere. This holiness is causing and calling us to be submissive and obedient to the governing authorities that God has placed over us. It's this holiness that will give us an insatiable appetite for God's Word. It's this holiness that calls us to put away all deceit and malice and envy, hypocrisy and slander so that we can truly, in a life of holiness, taste and see the goodness of God. And yet, as Peter has unveiled all of this, I wonder if the readers that read this letter for the first time in the first century and for many of you today might be saying, but Peter, you don't understand. The world I live in is far too difficult to be holy. The passions I have are too strong to defend against. The situation I find myself in is so frustrating, it's impossible not to sin. The authorities that are over me, the boss that and employer that I have are so hostile and corrupt, it is impossible to submit. The persecution and the pain that this world is putting on me is bringing me to my end. And Peter seems to recognize our reaction. And he says that this call of holiness in a world of suffering can only be made a reality when we put our eyes on Jesus. And we put our focus and our attention on him. To be able to do that, we need to look at Jesus in a way that maybe we have forgotten to. Maybe some of that wonder has gone away. To be reminded of Jesus' truth, that's my aim this morning. To remind us of his sacrifice, to remind us of his truth. And At the end of the service, I'm going to show a video. I don't show many videos, but I think it will be good for us to see in picture what we know in word, and that is the sacrifice that Christ made, and to do some business with God this morning, to reclaim the wonder and the mystery of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. So let's look to the words of Peter, an eyewitness of Jesus his sufferings and his resurrection. Let's stand for the reading of God's word as we look at our text this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin; neither was deceit found in his mouth. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When Jesus suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to his Father, the one who judges justly. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Father, God bless the reading of your word this morning. Remind us of the truth that is contained in this short passage that we will look at this morning. Father, I pray that the cross would be central to the preaching of this church, not only this morning, but in the days and even years to come. I pray that the proclamation of your gospel, that you were crucified, dead, and buried, and that you rose for the forgiveness of our sins would be proclaimed from every church pulpit today. Lord, I pray that people will come to a saving knowledge of you. Those who have never trusted you as their Savior, that today would be the day of salvation. They would bow the knee, and they would give their life to you, their Lord and Savior. Lord, I also pray for those who have heard this story in some ways who have been there and done that, Lord. I pray that you would reclaim in our hearts a wondrous awe, a reverent fear of what you did when you placed your son on that cross. The price that he paid, Lord, let us never forget the old rugged cross. and Let us be reminded That you did that for us once and for all to deal with our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness so that we can now live to righteousness and that we could be not a wandering people but a people of your flock, of your fold, that we may be guarded and shepherded by you alone. Give us the grace we need to do this, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There's an idiom that seems to ring true in many facets of life, and that is that familiarity breeds contempt. The idea of this truism is the more acquainted we become with something, the less we come to treasure or see it for its worth and value. This isn't any more true than in the life of an average Christian who sees the cross, who hears the gospel message, who has studied uh, this wondrous story It's meaning and because we know the outcome that our familiarity causes us to lose the wonder of it all. Let me ask you this morning, have you lost the wonder of the cross? Because you come in here each and every week, you listen to a sermon and you sing some songs, has it become routine? Have you forgotten the grace that has saved you? Have you lost that first love? You find yourself just kind of saying over and over again, what more is there to the gospel? There's got to be more to this. Have you lost the wonder of the sacrifice? Peter seems to say that we can know by looking at our heart of submission, especially in the light of great persecution. The Apostle Paul hit it on the head when he said, in Philippians 3:10, that he wanted to know that wonder of the cross when he said I want to know the power of the resurrection but in doing so Paul said I have to share in the sufferings of Christ in his death but how are we to share in the sufferings of Christ and his death how are we to continue to have this wonder for the cross of Christ Peter has told us over and over again, partaking in Christ's death involves suffering for doing good, for being persecuted, for being a light in a world of darkness. But sadly, far too few of us are partaking in that holiness on a daily basis for one reason. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to endure hardship. And so we just find ourselves, if you will, um, masking our Christianity into the lives of everyday life and people. People don't know that we're Christians. People don't know that we're followers of Jesus Christ. Oh, we live good lives, but the last thing we want to do is out ourselves, if you will, as a follower of His, as a person who has been wondrously changed by the power of the cross from 2,000 years ago. Some of us have lost that wonder and mystery because we have forgotten the agony and the misery of the cross. And it is here that Peter reminds us that we need to renew the wonder. And how do we do it? It's under three headings this morning that Peter gives us. We need to see Jesus as the standard. We need to see Jesus as the Savior. And we need to see Jesus as the shepherd. You see these three attributes of Jesus— That he has shown the world through his submissive action is how he wants us to live amidst suffering. So that as wandering sheep, we might be found in a way that we may live the abundant life amidst difficult suffering and pain. And so let's look at each of these headings this morning. Number one, the standard. We see Jesus as a standard as we finished up last week in verse 21 where we're reminded of this truth for this you have been called what have we been called to we've been called to suffer for some of you that's not your christianity wait wait a minute that's a wrong word Tim. I've been called to abundant life yes abundant life in Christ which is seen in suffering where we can see all trials as joy Jesus reminds us that we are called to this and he says We have been called because Christ also suffered for you. He's left you an example so that we might follow in his steps. The writer of Hebrews reminds us of a truth. I want you to turn there for a moment, just a couple pages to your left. Hebrews chapter 4 reminds us that Jesus has suffered, that Jesus has endured, that Jesus has gone through what we have and he is able to sympathize with us. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 it says, Since we have a high, great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What's the confession? We have a high priest and he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses One who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We've got one who knows what we're going through. We've got one who recognizes what it is to suffer and to do so without sin. For some of you this morning, you're suffering great hardships. And I don't want to diminish that in one bit. And that is why Peter says, turn your eyes to Jesus. Not to your neighbor, not to your favorite preacher, and not to some other person that's walked a difficult life. Turn your eyes to Jesus. He's the standard. And notice what we're called to do that that Hebrews reminds us of, and it's true as well in First Peter in verse sixteen. We are with confidence to draw near to the throne of grace. We go to Jesus so that we may receive grace and mercy. In our time of need. So, whatever struggles, whatever suffering you find yourself dealing with this morning, Peter is reminding us what Hebrews reminds us of, and that is we are to turn to Jesus in our times of weakness and trials and temptation. It is there we receive grace and mercy. Here's the amazing thing of what the writer of Hebrews is saying prior to the incarnation, God knew suffering. He understood suffering. He knew it from an intellectual standpoint. But God, in His perfection, had never suffered. God, in His perfection, had never dealt with that kind of pain. And it wasn't until the incarnation, when God put on flesh, that Jesus walked this earth that he felt the sting of suffering. We don't serve a God who we look to who says, yeah, I feel your pain, I guess, because I've never been in your situation. No, we've got a God who not only feels our pain, but who has felt the sting and pain of suffering. And he did so without sin. And therefore, Jesus is our example. He is the standard. Notice in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, he is our example. That word example there is the Greek word hupogramos. And hupogramos means uh, a picture, if you will. It gives a picture of an educational classroom. Hupogramos was to speak of uh, Greek school children. And the best way to explain it was that the teacher would go to the blackboard, if you will, and he would teach the students their ABC's and how they would teach the students the ABC's was the teacher would go to the blackboard and would write A and B and I know that's not the Greek alphabet but you guys of course know the English one better and they would write the letters of the alphabet and the students job was to go to the blackboard and trace the teachers letters And that way, instilling knowledge into the mind of the student as to knowing their ABCs and how to write it. The student's job was to get as close, to trace out the letter to the best of their ability, to follow their teacher's example. What Peter is saying is is that Jesus is our example. The great teacher, the great leader, the great Messiah that he is, has left us an example. He has left it on the spiritual chalkboard for us so that we can follow and trace his ways. Do you know that holiness is not about a thing of do's and don'ts? You see, some of you have this idea that holiness is doing all the right things and staying away from the bad things. It's not that. That's that's stale and that's duty. But what Jesus calls us to is to trace his ways, to follow him. He has set, the, if you will, the example. He has set the direction. And what holiness is, is that you and I get as close to the example of our teacher, Jesus, as possible. You see, holiness is just trying to get as close to the lines that Jesus put. To make our letters look like his. To make our lives look like his. And you know, the problem with holiness is what you and I do is we look at the other students in the room and we say, well, look how messed up they are. They're all over the place. They're scribbling all around. They're not even close. I'm better than they are. Holiness is not if you're better than me. Holiness is how close are you to the Savior's example. Our King's letters. And so as Christians, we need to begin to trace out the life and example of Jesus. So how does Peter say we do this? How do we begin to do it? We've got to get as close to Jesus as possible. C.S. Lewis says this in the book, Mere Christianity. If you want to get warm, then stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, then you've got to get into the water. But spiritually, if you want joy and power, peace, eternal life, then you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. Who has those things? Jesus Christ. You got to get close to them. You see, some of you want holiness and you want to be told, well, what can I do and what can I do? Let me tell you what you can do. Get as close to Jesus as possible this morning. Follow his ways. Follow in his steps. Peter had come to learn this. This wasn't something that Peter was just writing theoretically. He had come to understand this. He had come in three and a half years walking and following the example and the steps of Jesus. That at Jesus' ascension, not too long after it, Jesus had come to know what the Scripture had said. Jesus had said these words, when a student is fully taught, he becomes like his teacher. And Jesus and John, as they were standing before the Sanhedrin, were being questioned. They were being hit with all of these questions about who this Jesus was and all kinds of theological issues were coming up. And Peter and John, though they were unlearned men, would answer and give responses. And the Sanhedrin stood back amazed and the response was simple. These men have walked with Jesus. That's holiness. Holiness is when the world sees you, they see that you've been with Jesus. Does your workplace see that this morning? Does your neighborhood? Do your children? Your spouse? Does our government see that Christians are walking with Jesus? Holiness is not a list of do's and don'ts. It is following an example And it's not just in the words that we say, but it's in the actions that we do that in good times and bad, people see Jesus when they see us. So notice what Peter says. He says, okay, we're in difficult times. How do we live holiness in a world of debauchery and sin, in a world of persecution and pain? The answer is seen in Christ's suffering. Notice he says the example that he's given us is that he suffered for us And that he committed no sin in that suffering, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Let's just stop there for a moment. What we see in Jesus in his time of suffering is that Jesus didn't retaliate. So if Jesus is our standard of holiness, then holiness amidst suffering must look at Jesus. And when we see Jesus, we don't see one who retaliates Notice what Peter says, and let's be reminded that Peter is an eyewitness. This isn't Jesus putting—I'm Peter putting the children's Bibles book together and just making Jesus out to be a great guy. Peter's dealing with his own sin, his own unwillingness to suffer well, and he's looking from a distance, the gospel writers remind us, that Peter sees from a distance that Jesus does not retaliate. That word reviled speaks of insulting and abusive language. The people let Jesus have it. They vilified him and they spoke words and they did things that would provoke a response from Jesus. Every one of the things that Jesus endured, if you were to read them from the biblical narrative, you will see that what the enemies of God were doing to Jesus was to elicit a response. With every punch, come on Jesus, punch back. With every evil thing said, come on Jesus, revile back. Retaliate. Stake your claim. You say you're Jesus, you say you're the Messiah, do something about it. Everything they did was to get Jesus to retaliate. Turn in your Bibles for a moment so we're reminded of this truth. Keep your hands in 1 Peter, but go to the Gospel of Matthew for a moment. The Gospel of Matthew. Let's be reminded of this truth. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verses 68 and 6, 67 and 68. Matthew 26, verses 68. I keep saying it, 67 and 68. The high priest in 65 says he tore his robes and said, He's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and they struck him. and Some slapped him saying prophesy to us Christ. Who is it that struck you? They're looking for a response out of Jesus with every blow to the face and every spit they were looking for him to respond. Notice verse uh, chapter 27, verses 12 through 14. Later on, when he is before Pilate, he stands before the governor, and the governor asks, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? They're accusing you of things, dude. Speak up, is what Pilate's saying. But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Go on to verse 28 through 31. It tells us that the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. They gathered the whole battalion before him. He's before everybody. And they stripped him naked and they put a scarlet robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. they spit on him and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. And they led him away to crucify him. Notice verse 39. then two robbers were crucified with him one on the right and one on the left and those who pass by as these passerbys are they're just bystanders in this thing you would think they would just they would probably be sad to what's going on i mean who wants to see a man die? but notice what matthew reminds us of he says that those who pass by wagging their heads and saying you who destroyed the temple who said you could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days save yourself come on Prove your deity to us. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So it wasn't just bystanders. Notice the chief priests get into this. With the scribes and elders, the religious leaders, they mocked him. You saved others, and he can't save himself. He is the king of the Jews. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And notice who else gets into it. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Abuse after abuse. From people that had watched Jesus' ministry, who had never seen Jesus' ministry, to guilty sinners on crosses for crimes they committed. They vilified him. Do you know the human instinct when that stuff happens is to respond? Have you ever been accused of something? Has someone ever said something about you that is wrong? The natural desire, your blood begins to boil because you say, that's not true. That's not right. Let me set the record straight. And yet Jesus suffered unjust suffering without retaliating. Now you gotta understand, Peter understood this instinct. Remember, Jesus gets arrested, the battalion comes to take Jesus away. And Peter, you remember Mr. Spartacus himself, pulls the sword out. You don't mess with Jesus. I'll show you who's boss. Swings that sword with such utter perfection and accuracy and strikes off the ear of a servant in the battalion. And what does Jesus do? What an opportunity for Jesus to be like, that's what you get for trying to get me. Serves you right. But Jesus pushes Peter out of the way, tells him to put away his sword and he reattaches the ear of the man and makes him whole again you say tim why does peter bring all this up because people were suffering in peter's day the writer or the readers of his Uh, letter, we're struggling with arrest and persecution and, and all kinds of mocking and all kinds of reviling going on in their everyday and I can assume that some of you today have some level of that reviling going on in your life and what Jesus is reminding or what Peter's reminding us of Jesus is we are not to retaliate just as Jesus didn't retaliate but everything in me says I should right? Jesus says no, I didn't do it and if I'm your example, I'm your standard you shouldn't do it as well So notice, he doesn't just not retaliate, but he does not respond with threats. The text tells us when he suffered, he did not threaten. Peter says in verse 23 that during the continued suffering of Jesus... It says in the text, as he suffered, as he was reviled, what it's speaking to is that it was happening over and over and over again. The incessant jeering, the ongoing abuse, the persistent beatings. Jesus uttered no words of threat. So you say, well, what's the difference? The difference between retaliation and threats is the difference between active revenge and passive revenge. So active revenge, you hit me, You abuse me, my active response is I punch you back, right? That's what I do. I use my abilities, my strength, my powers, and I punch you back. Well, Jesus didn't do that. But Jesus did not sin in retaliating and going against the will of God in a passive way either. Let me explain. When we threaten, we passively find revenge. So the employer that you have asks you or called you to do something, and you know that if you tell them how you really feel, you'll get fired. And so you get a group of people who are not the boss around you and say, let me tell you, if he ever asks me to do that again, I swear to all that's good and holy in this world, I'll deal with him. Well, you didn't do it actively, but you passively did it. Many of us passively threaten things because in our own power we know that we can't respond and so here's the thing that Peter's trying to say for any of you who think that Jesus didn't respond because he couldn't have because the world was against him, because he had the whole Roman Empire coming down upon him the Jewish establishment coming after him the mob of people yelling crucify they were after him of course Jesus isn't gonna retaliate he's one dude he can't make that work But what Jesus could have done is said, hey, wait till my father brings in his kingdom and then you're going to feel the pain. Wait till I'm resurrected in three days. You just wait until I come on a horse that's called Faithful and True and I yield my sword on that last day of judgment. You just wait. He doesn't say any of that. In fact, as they're yelling and screaming profanities at him, as they mock him on the cross, he looks to the heavens and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Peter says, I was there. Jesus suffered well. I saw from a distance this stuff that was going on. He did not just not retaliate, He did not threaten. But as Isaiah 53 says, which Peter will will address over and over again in this passage, he went to the shears like a lamb, silent. And what Peter is telling us is, when people hurt you, when people wrong you, when we are persecuted, when we are called all kinds of things in the world, you don't sit there and retaliate and you don't threaten. I just, hey, what's that smell? Oh, it's your soul on fire. You don't respond like that. But like Jesus, you suffer well by not threatening or retaliating. So, how did he do it? How did he do it? We are told that he was afflicted in Isaiah 53, he was oppressed. Our iniquities were put on him. How could he suffer that well without responding with human instinct? He did so just like we are called to, and that is to fully rely on the Father. He fully relied on the Father. Notice verse 23. How does he get through it? He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. How could Jesus endure such abuse, such trial and tribulation? How could he do it where Peter says no sin was found in his mouth, no deceit? That he would be reviled and not reviled in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. How did he do it? Notice the text, by continually entrusting himself to him, the Father. You see, Jesus didn't use some, um, if you will, deity pyrotechnics. He didn't use some supernatural power while he hung on the cross. The way Jesus dealt with suffering is the same way you and I are. And that's why Peter says he's our example. He's our standard. So what does he do? He endures suffering and abuse from men by giving it to God. God, it's yours. I'm going to entrust myself to you. That word entrust is paradidomai. A Greek word is a Greek word used in the legal system where it spoke of a man placing himself in the custody of someone else and so what we get is the legal mindset of the person who turns themselves in if you will who says I'm gonna place myself under the custody of someone greater what Jesus did was he put handcuffs on himself and he said I'm not going to allow myself the prerogative to speak into my own life to address the things that have been addressed about me. I'm not going to deal with them. I'm going to put handcuffs around me, and I'm placing myself in the custody of the Father. And whatever you, Father, think needs to be done, however you think needs to be addressed, whatever accusations you think need to be uh, responded to, I'm going to give it to you, and I'm not going to worry about it. Holiness in a life of submission is putting handcuffs on our will and our sovereignty and giving it over to God. Your boss hates your guts? Put handcuffs on your arms and your mouth and say, God, it's up to you. You deal with it. You got someone who's your enemy that wants to bring pain and suffering into your life? Put handcuffs on your will and say, God, it's up to you. And giving it over to you. So what did Jesus give over? It doesn't say. It just says he entrusted himself. And this was in an ongoing basis. John MacArthur put it this way. With every punch of the fist, with every mocking of the mouth, Jesus, with every one of those instances, continued to give himself over to God. I'm not going to deal with it, God. I'm going to let you deal with it. I'm not going to address it in my own strength, God. I'll let you address it. And some of you are being beaten. Some of you are being abused, whether emotionally or maybe even physically. And you're wondering, what do I do? How do I fix it? You suffer well by giving it to God instead of trying to deal with this suffering on your own. But notice, he didn't just entrust his own physical and emotional well-being to God, but he also entrusted his enemies those that were hurting him, those that were beating him, he gave to God. You see, the reason why we want revenge is because we don't think God's going to deal with it, right? i got to deal with it because God's not faithful. God is not going to avenge. He's not going to repay. And the reason why we don't think he's going to do it is because he's not doing it in the here and now. So the boss or the government authorities that are, are beating us down, that are persecuting us, the suffering that we find ourselves in, we say, well, God, you're not dealing with it. Or maybe we don't like how God is dealing with it. Jesus said, I'm giving it to you, God. Those who abuse me, those who hurt me, they're yours. Oh, how we can learn from Jesus' example. In this world of suffering, in this world of pain, whether it's trials that nobody's brought on, things, medical conditions, uh, emotional distress, or, or tribulations that others have brought into our life, we need to give it over to God, rely on him knowing he is faithful and he is right and that he will wrong, right all wrongs and he will bring all things under his sovereign hand. That's what Jesus did. Now notice we see that Jesus himself was also the Savior. Verse 24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. It's here where Peter speaks of Christ as our Savior. He speaks as Isaiah 53 has reminded us of the suffering servant who now saves. He says that this Jesus was sent by the Father to redeem a people, to be their Savior, and he describes how. How does he do it? He describes how Jesus died for our sins. Notice that Jesus died for our sins. How did he do it? He himself bore our sin. How did he do it? Notice, write this down, Jesus die, how Jesus died for our sins how did he do it? Theologians call it the vicarious substitutionary atonement. What does that mean? Simply put, Jesus Christ, you can write this down, I'll try to go as slow as possible for you. Jesus Christ, by his own sacrificial choice, Jesus Christ, by his own sacrificial choice, was punished and put to death in your place. By his own sacrificial choice, Jesus was punished and put to death in your place. Thus satisfying the demands of justice. Thus satisfying the demands of justice so God could justly forgive your sins. By his own sacrificial choice, Jesus was punished and put to death in your place, thus satisfying the demands of justice so God could justly forgive you of your sins. What this means is that Jesus became the ultimate scapegoat, which Israelites would have known. The Hebrew people of of, uh, Peter's day would have known the scapegoat that all the sin is put on, and he becomes the one who's found guilty. The scapegoat hadn't done anything, but they put all the sins and all of the transgressions on that one animal. Jesus was that scapegoat. And what that means is Jesus, who knew no sin, Became sin on our behalf. This is what Peter is saying. He bore our sins in his body. Isaiah 53 reminds us that God laid on him the iniquity of us all. What the vicarious substitutionary atonement of Jesus means is when Jesus hung on the cross, he did not die for his sins, he died for mine. And he died for yours. He took your place. The beating I should have deserved, he took it for me. The death I was supposed to die, he died for me. The fellowship that he lost, I should have lost with the Father, and he took it and was forsaken by the Father so that I might be a child of God's. And if that doesn't warm your heart, if that doesn't get you to start dealing with your sin in a real way, then there's something wrong with your Christianity. Because it is Christ who was lifted up on that cross to take all of the punishment and all of the penalty so that you and I might live. And he did so by having all that sin, all of our sin put on him. And Jesus did the most unspeakable thing. Jesus took that sin and he presented himself to the Father. And he said, Father, I am sin. I bear it on my body. And God did the only thing a holy and just God could do with sin, and he poured out his righteous indignation and wrath on his son. Why? Because if we enter the presence of God in our sin, God would have done it to us. You see, the problem that sinners have is when they stand before the presence of God outside of this life, God will do to them what he did to Christ. And for eternity will pour out his wrath and indignation in a place called hell. And so you call yourself a believer today. Have you lost the wonder that Christ took that in eternity of punishment and pain and suffering and he bore it on his body on a tree that you and I may now die to sin and live to righteousness? Praise God! This is the great heart of the gospel. He died for a sin that is not his own. And he took the blame for us. The shame and suffering that was our destiny, he took so that we might no longer be ra- objects of God's wrath, but now objects of his mercy and love. But you say, Tim, I don't know about all that, but I sure do like the cross. Let me tell you something, the cross is nothing. The cross is nothing. Jesus' life is nothing. Nothing. Without the cross, who cares about the miracles, who cares about deliverance of demons, who cares about healing, the only thing that matters is Jesus Christ crucified on our behalf. And if you don't accept that, if you don't receive that, then the cross means nothing. It's a nice piece of jewelry. Put it all over your wall. It will decorate it beautifully. But there's no power in the cross without a changed, repentant heart. And so Peter says then we need to deal with our sin. And he shows us, how do we deal with our sin? He says, you die to sin and you live to righteousness. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your sin is paid for. You're no longer having to toil and strive with the bondage of sin. No longer does sin have domination over your life. And now you can live in righteousness. But how do you do it? You do what Christ did. He died to sin. The word died there speaks of a rupture. It speaks of a great divide. It speaks that I make a decision that because of what Christ has done for me, because I look to the cross and I see that Christ died on my behalf, that the sins that put Christ there can no longer be a part of my life. I can't live that way anymore. I can't pursue those things. I can't long for those things anymore. That's what put Christ on the cross. That's why he suffered and died. And so I say to sin, get lost. I'm done with you. I mortify the very thought of your existence in my life. And I say no to sin. How do I do it? By relying and entrusting my life to the Father. But sadly, so many of us find ourselves still in bondage. You say, why? You've been set free. In 1863, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. It would free all of the slaves in the South. And yet, no one left. No one got their freedom. Slaves would not see their freedom until 1865. And what was the problem? The problem was is the slaves in the South did not believe that Abraham Lincoln was the bondage breaker. The one who had set them free. Because the old slave one, the slave master that they had was far more powerful in their minds than the president of the United States. Can I tell you something? The only reason why you're in bondage today isn't because someone's chained you up. It's because you think the old slave master, the devil is a lot stronger than the one who has set you free. And so when the bondage guy in the back, your old slave master says, oh, you can't live without this stuff, you say, I've been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. And greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. We've been set free. And so we're to live to righteousness. We're to pursue him. Now here's the thing, what does Jesus want us to do? Notice we see that he's the shepherd. So what is he asking of us? It tells us, and we'll just close with this, for you were straying like sheep. There's Isaiah 53 again. We all are like sheep. We've all gone astray each our own way. And here Christ amidst this wandering group of people. Christ goes to the cross and dies for our sins and he does so so that we can return to him. And notice this return involves our turning. This returning deals with repentance. If we want to be a part of the flock of God, we've got to turn from sin and pursue righteousness and pursue Christ. We need to bow the knee to Jesus and give our lives to him, no longer living in the bondage of sin, but now under the fold of God. Peter reminds us that we're wandering. And some of you this morning are wandering far from the fold of God and it's time to come home. Look to Jesus, look to the cross, look to the price that was paid and repent of your sins. Bow the knee, give your life to Jesus. Start living for Him. And it's when we do that, as we turn, that we see Christ's present task. Is that He's the great shepherd. He's the great guardian of our souls. When we bow the knee to Jesus, He promises to lead us. He promises to guide us. He promises to guard us. That word overseer literally is the guardian of our souls. He guards us from all dangers, all toils and snares. And he promises his presence and his love. And he empowers us with his spirit. And he gives us gifts to serve and worship him with. He places us in within a local church to be led by elders who are there to serve as under shepherds, under the chief shepherd, and he does all this so that at the end of our lives he would not lose any of us, but would bring to his Father those whom he has redeemed. He would present before his Father a people of all tribes, tongues, and of all nations without blemish and defect. His bride, so that we might reign with Christ. Peter says, all of this is done, folks, through the cross. Have you lost its wonder this morning? Have you forgotten the shame and sorrow and suffering? Have you forgotten that you've been set free from the penalty of sin? And now you are set free from the power of sin. And one day when we stand before him, we will be free, praise the Lord, from the presence of sin.